0: Welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you back, and I'm C.R. Wiley, and uh, we have a, a, a part two today. Uh, the first part uh, was our, our program last week, and today is part two on the theme that Tom is going to introduce in a moment. But before we go any further, uh, as I noted, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor here in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of things, and it's a beautiful day in Battleground, Washington. And i uh, sun is out. The sky is clear. You can see Mount St. Helens and Mount Hood uh, crisply outlined against the horizon. And it's <laughs> going to be 75 degrees. The leaves are in, the flowers are out, and you guys are in New England. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so enough of the gloating. Uh, <laughs>
1: Glenn, introduce yourself. <laughs> uh, I'm Glenn Sunshine, a soon-to-be professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And it's a beautiful day in New England. We're going to have a high of 65. Wow. <laughs> and
0: not quite 75, but pretty good for <laughs> New England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, and uh, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself, and then maybe you just take a moment to segue us back into the subject. Okay,
2: um, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at a variety of places. One of which is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and uh, I am just a few a few miles from where Glenn is, so uh, the weather is. Fortunately, the same here as it is there, but it is far removed from uh, Chris (laughs) in that sense. (laughs) We don't have 75 yet, but uh, 75 in New England, though, is probably a bit different because it tends to bring a lot of humidity with it. And so a lot of people in, in this area of Connecticut. A lot of people think it's just going to be a cool, dry 75, but
0: sometimes it it, it kind of starts feeling like the south. So yeah, that's right. It is an odd phenomenon, you know. Here on the west coast, we get, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we're known for rain, but uh, it's a it doesn't make it for the humidity that that you know we had back east, or you guys had back east. So anyway, uh, it will be cool and dry and bright and uh, sunny today. <laughs> but uh, why, don't, why don't we get back to the subject, uh, Tom? Uh, okay. Go ahead, get us rolling.
2: Okay. Um, so what I was doing uh, in the episode last week um, was unpacking an interesting article. And so I guess for the listener, it, rather than try to um, torture those who did catch the, the episode last week by just saying what I said last week, I'll just reference that uh, to anyone who hasn't heard last week's episode, to go back and listen to that maybe uh, before listening to this, although you don't have to do it that order, um, but it may help, and it will kind of introduce a lot of the themes that I'm carrying through today, um, but one of the things um, I was doing is unpacking an interesting article by Ed F- Edward Fazer. He's kind of a, 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 I think he's from a Catholic philosopher, natural theologian, but he had an interesting article in The American Mind um, called Woke Ideology is a Psychological Disorder. And so, you know, naturally that kind of title will draw anyone in. <laughs> and so it drew, uh, it drew me in and, and the rest of us along with it. But um, one of the things he's doing in that article um, is is talking about the way in, well, he, he's taking Plato, the philosopher example, and he's taking his understanding of kind of the good and reality and the way in which all things um, creaturely should be oriented towards the good for their harmony and fulfillment. And when that gets disordered, Um, The harmony breaks down and then the flourishing breaks down and then um, disharmony and all kinds of corruption enter the picture. And that's his way of trying to make sense of the good, the virtues, um, the way in which nature isn't enough, but is oriented towards something, something transcendent. Um, but he didn't have the the, the advantages of divine revelation and scripture to kind of fill that out. So it, it's obviously a, a flawed and limited picture. But we talked about last week some of the maybe positive aspects about it that that are different than maybe a materialist case that would would have been around then, but also you know is is all around us today, even in in much of the the church, whether we we're conscious of it often or not. And so he's kind of talking about that. And I'm going to kind of get into what he talked about. But I think another way into the material and its significance is to kind of look at a lot of the things that are happening around us. Um, I think we're all encountering things um, that uh, we don't fully know how to make sense of all the time. But we see that there's a kind of increase in certain kinds of things. We've talked over and over again in the increase of of kind of a dismantling of the significance of reason in, in a hum, in human life in, in the moral life. things have kind of moved from from reason being able to discern some kind of truth, beauty, and goodness, um, or to understand uh, revelatory truth in in its, in, its, um, in its claims on reality to now reason almost sort of being a function of of our wants and desires and our our fashionings of ourselves and everything around us. And so then we've increasingly seen in our culture reason now just become sort of a a mask for our sinister um, agendas of of power and dominance. And so if I make a statement that says, you know, um, doing that is not good for you, I'm really just trying to assert my advantages and privileges and impose my my picture on the world that benefits me and so there is no there is no truth there is no ordering of our, our ourselves towards what's true about reality and ourselves but what is true is basically the fact that I have sinister motives um, wills to power or or you know or a Darwinian sense um, aims of my surviving and your you're not surviving um and so reason has has is radically understood different than even say someone from a few generations ago who at least thought that it had some ability maybe just through the sciences or, or through some kind of moral reflection to come up with some kind of
0: truth or purchase on reality to which we could we could measure things yeah i um, think, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it would be good to kind of make a point here that might help some of our listeners, um, you know, one of the things that you run across an occasion is uh, someone who uh, says, well, you know, we can uh, kind of glean from a Marxist analysis, a, a set of, uh, of categories that will help us to, to think about the world and maybe make a better world or a more just world. Um, and the idea being that, well, you know, what what would be different in doing that than what you guys in the podcast are talking about when we when you you know refer to Plato or Aristotle or, or what have you? Well, uh, there is an enormous difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Church Fathers rejected lots of pagan philosophers. They didn't just willy-nilly say, okay, we're, we'll we'll just take them all, uh, they were very selective. Uh, they dismissed materialists. They dismissed the atomists. they dismissed Lucretius. They dismissed, you know, the radical sort of, uh, thinking of Heraclitus. They, they dismissed a lot of, a lot of, you know, philosophy in the ancient world. They dismissed the Epicureans. They didn't think they had anything really to contribute and, and, and what made, um, uh, particularly, uh, you know, Platonic philosophy so sort of uh, captivating or sort of interesting to them is the correspondences between the Christian faith and biblical revelation and things that Plato was talking about. And what Plato was asserting is that unseen things are more real than things you can see. In other words, they're permanent. They're permanent things. So uh, that sounds awfully familiar. <laughs> you know, we have an unseen God, a God who can't be apprehended uh, visually. We have uh, references in Paul's writings to, you know, the eternal and how the eternal, uh, you know, is, you know, uh, immutable and and, and doesn't uh, pass away, doesn't change, and things that we can can see do, pass away, do change. So this is what struck them as as interesting. Uh, and also the place of reason in all of this was, um, you know, in terms of platonic philosophy in particular, and I'm thinking of Aristotle as, you know, as actually in that same tradition. Um, so it's important to make those points. I think one of the things that I'm, that I'm going to do today is help uh, some of our listeners to see uh, where uh, you know the church fathers departed, how how they stepped away from you know and the apostles and so forth from good, Plato. Good. So there are, there are points of disagreement as well, even with yeah. those guys. That's right. But, yeah. but I and, think and,
2: and I think it may may be worth noting is a lot of people think because of certain readings, um, which I think are unfair readings of the past. That they think, for example, when when the the pagan philosophers like Plato or Aristotle talk about reason, and Aristotle in particular, they're thinking of autonomous reason. Now, there is no such thing as autonomous reason in any of those thinkers. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, if you if you just have your basic understanding of Aristotle, um, you have a primary mover. Okay, your reason doesn't move until it's moved upon, and the primary uh, mover is not one of the other movements that require something else to move move it. Now, that's a very thin; it's non-salvific; it's fraught with conditions to get it wrong. Whatever that prime mover is, but it is not suggesting, in any sense of the word, that human reason. (laughs) Can ever be self-generating, self-manufactured. As a matter of fact, that's a product of a lot of modern idealism, which we've talked about other places. Um, similar with pre- Plato is is you're being caught up in in participating in the eternal um, by actually a process of a, a spiritual process. You know, and we'll you, we'll get into that in a little bit as well, um, through which you you have to be purified to see this these this this transcendent realm of, you know, the eternal end forms. And again, Christianity will come later and say, okay, yeah, he's right about that, but he's wrong about what is entailed in that. What we're given in Christ is a, is a whole lot, lot different than some kind of, um, you know, uh, set of human potentials that we can kind of climb ourselves up that ladder. Um but 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 we'll get back to that. But that was another thing. There isn't, no, there isn't an autonomy going on here in that kind of, that, that it can be severed off from the source, the eternal source of everything. Um, but yeah. but now, in the
1: reason, oh, you had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just before we move on, the critique of reason among postmodernists and uh, critical theory people and all of that actually has an element that is worth noting. Um, And that is that we're operating on the basis of a bunch of hidden assumptions uh, called a worldview that we never really question, that may or may not align itself accurately with the world as it really is. And further, our reason is impaired by the work of original sin so that we use it as a way of justifying ourselves and justifying our beliefs and things like that. So the critique. Works because there is an it, it, it works in the sense that people accept it because there is an element of truth there and we have to really acknowledge that if we don't if we if we sort of ignore the the, the validity of what they're saying um, we're going to really kind of miss the boat in terms of actually being able to come up with an effective response to it yeah yeah that's yeah great point. Um, and
2: and and I think, again, this is, you know, you follow just a good, robust Christian theology. All of these elements are there, um, both the recognition that we are, you know, part of our constitution and natures in the image of God is such that it it is rational and oriented towards truth and and our actions are related to that truth. But also because of the fall. That we we in in those parts of us that have not been purified through Christ, um, we we want to um, we want to our reason kind of does end up hiding uh, a lot of those things we suppress, and therefore you know the the, the the spiritual process of being weaned off of our idols, the truth element, and then our loves being purified, the sanctification element, are requisite to truthful you know understanding of. The of in using of reason and the proper um, ethical forms of life. So, um, so yeah, that, that is something I think. Um, But one of the things I I think it was coupling with and and from this, this article as well is, is the, the other aspect that we see today is because reason has been looked at with suspicion has been defined certain ways and kind of, you know, kind of taken from its, its classic place of, of part of, our orientation towards the truth, and therefore its role in the purification of our our affections and loves and desires, Um, then what we also have, as we've talked about many times, is its replacement with kind of the affective aspects of ourselves and even the emotions, um, not governed by um, anything that helps them, in some sense, um, submit to the truth that reason is able earn and orient ourselves to. I mean this is a classic Christian way of putting it. Another way of putting it this way. We see people in, in we see churches basically geared right towards the the, the more base drives of our, as human beings, um, our, our kind of our wants, our desires, our best life, our you know, our wholeness in holy this worldly terms, um, and so, so we don't find classical spiritual disciplines like practicing temperance, <laughs> um, for example, withholding ourselves, fa- fasting for the Protestant. Right? I mean, we think of these things as kind of ornaments to someone who really just wants to have a deep personal, you know, encounter with God. But we don't see them as part of the the way in which the Christian life is to be embodied in light of the baptismal pattern of putting to death and putting on. And so because of that, we have a bunch of emotions being fed by the therapeutic and emotional kind of driven music, church, liturgy, theology, to which it's really just the, 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 there is no uprooting and reorienting of the affections towards, towards um, the truth of God and who we are in God. And so reason, again, is not something, it's either detached or masking something, but it's a not not a place at which it's being, it needs to be regenerated. And in that regeneration, orienting the rest of us towards that truth that is now our reality in Christ. And so couple it with other, something of a culture that has gotten rid of just um, natural virtues, right? Um, temperance in, in the natural sphere. Um, I notice increasingly, and it's not just because of technology, but fights breaking out in restaurants and airports and and cities and, you know, burning down cities. It, it, you know, you're seeing the intemperate, the, in, you know, intemperance everywhere. Um, and and so, you know, the the aim is that that we can just act and achieve some kind of good. And truth, just by unbridled um, passion, um, in such a way that this is healthy for any kind of society and any kind of flourishing for any kind of people. So, I just see an increase of intemperance (laughs) um, everywhere. Um, We see we see no place for the significance of virtue formation in the natural, much less the, the the spiritual life. And so we're very much in a set of conditions like Plato in this article is talking about as the sick society, if you will. Um, so maybe that's a good way to get kind of back into the, the society as he saw it and
1: kind of riff from there. Glenn, did you have a... Yeah, just a couple of, of comments. You know, If you go back to the 70s, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called Escape from Reason. And while he didn't entirely anticipate exactly where this stuff was gonna head. He was already seeing that movement there um, away from uh, the role of of right reason in ordering society in terms of uh, ordering behavior, things like that. We also see it in uh, sort of pointedly in my students who don't seem to be able to distinguish between I I think and I feel. Yes, right, yeah. And, of course, when you get to woke ideology, the argument is that emphasis on reason, rationality, and things like that are marks of whiteness, which is, of course, a a bad thing. And instead, your self-interpreted lived experience is really the, the, the touchstone for truth. Yeah, a touchstone for truth that
0: kind of gets in the way of dealing with certain uncomfortable realities that this kind of white rationality actually helps you handle, like Math, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But you know, I think uh, one thing to think about too here in, is uh, when we think about virtues, you know, we have the cardinal virtues, and then we have the theological virtues. Cardinal virtues being, you know, temperance is one of those. You know, courage, prudence, and we uh, see justice, of course. So those yeah. those are those are three things that even uh, pagans identified as being absolutely essential to a well ordered society. Christian, You know, the Christian uh, faith uh, supplements those or actually, I think, directs them toward their proper end yeah. uh, with the theological virtues of love, you know, and uh, faith and hope. Um, but <clears throat> the, uh, you know, we talked last time about this kind of tripart uh, analysis of a human being, wisdom, yeah. you know, virtue and appetite. And uh, what, we've, what we've been talking about is how, you know, wisdom and virtue have been lost and appetite seems to drive everything and it has no guidance. Uh, you need wisdom and virtue to guide the appetites. It's not as though the appetites are bad. If we didn't That's have right. appetites, we'd all be dead. We, yeah. <laughs> we, we've got to eat. We've got to procreate. You know, we've got to, You know, there's sort of, but I actually think that wisdom and virtue refine the appetites uh, and develop them in ways that make our lives richer. so it's not a, it's not as though we're uh, you know saying that there's no place for the appetite in our lives it's that we want to we want to refine and direct those appetites toward uh, higher goods, higher ends you know like, I think it, it's interesting to me how even the most uh, uh, you know sort of uh, appetitive person you know person who's driven by an appetite um, does, uh, long for or sort of strive to refine uh, things that they enjoy. So, you know, you think about, I've known lots of guys who were really good with meat, you know, guys who are just sort of blue collar, you know, kind of guys who who never think of themselves as being wise or, uh, or particularly virtuous. But uh, when it comes to smoking meat, those guys <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> think a lot about it <laughs> and they, and they actually, a lot of patience, and they do a lot of things that require. So I actually think a lot of blue collar guys are very virtuous and very, very intelligent and wise. They just don't think of themselves in those terms, those categories. But, but I think they would be the first to agree that, you know, if you really want to enjoy life, it's not just a matter of giving yourself, a, you know, sort of over to your appetites in an, in a, you know, immediately like a child, you know, and shoving food in your mouth or an animal. But there's a there's a place for virtue and, and 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 reflection, even in this in this area that, you know, we don't want to completely control us.
2: It's yeah, that's right. I mean, he, uh, Ed Faser has a, you know a nice quote where he talks about in Plato's vision the most the vast majority of people are appetitive, and I think he's right with this. Um, that doesn't mean that their appetites are ungoverned by reason or spirit, but that reason and spirit are in them primarily ordered, not to a life of just contemplating wisdom or, or kind of, you know, guidance through honor and milit, you know, the virtues from military, um, service of protecting the people, but toward the pursuit of these kinds of, um, necessities of life, drink, property, marriage, family, material goods, and, and, and general, and they make up the productive class. And there is no other group without this this group. And I think, yeah, I mean, you, you, let's take someone who Plato wouldn't have liked very much um, the ar- the artist. I'm going to take the what I would consider, what he would say, way down on the train, the, the rock and roller, for example. <laughs> but one of the funny things you even notice about the rock and roller, right, okay, early on, I mean, there had to be some some self-discipline to learn the instruments, to harmonize together and do this. But it was sold as as what he will see as one of the lowest forms or base forms of, of lifestyle, you know, the hedonistic lifestyle, the, um, you know, the radical libertarian, the, you know, the, the the drug culture, the sex culture and all this. But if you, what you've noticed about most of the lives that did survive that stuff the Mick Jaggers of the world, is however they put that persona out there, now they got like family lives, they're drinking water and healthy, <laughs> you know, all, all this stuff that that is for a, it, it goes completely against the kind of attitude of their their early stuff, but they, to, to cultivate their, what they do love, um, whether, you know, now it's probably a product for them, so it's way, really way down there on Plato's level, but still even on that level, to sustain it in, in ways that don't to, you know, that, that don't uh, kind of upend the point of it all. They had to kind of move towards orienting their affections and disciplines in such a way um, that they weren't governed by the worst parts of themselves.
0: Yeah, it'd be fun to hear Mick Jagger singing about the, the virtues, you know, the card. <laughs> <virtues. laughs>
1: well, you know, Roger Daltrey just came out with something um, <laughs> attacking wokeism. I mean, yeah. so some of these guys are are coming along.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: so so much for the
2: teenage wasteland. He, he, he's really getting a glimpse of it now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um and so uh, so yeah, so one of the things um uh, that we were talking about or move the conversation to into um, well, we, we talked about the way for Plato, uh, hu- good human beings. Um, in Plato's view, are those in whom desire is subordinated to the objective natural order of things grasped by reason, and a good society is one governed by those who best know and practice this kind of natural law. Just as a rightly ordered psyche is one in which reason rules the appetites through the agency of spirit, so too a rightly ordered society is one in which the philosopher kings rule the productive class through auxiliaries. I mean, that was his ideal situation but what he starts to notice is what happens when that starts to get sick um what happens just like when reason is no longer aimed towards understanding the nature of the good and then the nature of things so that we know what something's nature is and how it's supposed to be oriented to to unfold towards its its um, perfection if you will um, so what happens when that gets off well the first thing i think we talked about last week is what he called democracy and that. This is kind of when you move away from those who kind of are governed by the kind of the highest spiritual aim of seeking the good for its own sake and then ordering the rest of society that way. This is when the the next group, the spirited, um, those who tend to be the guardians or the military at the time, um, started to, those virtues started to become what are centralized. Um, So rather than wisdom is the highest end, um, honor. Um, was one of the, the values, um, I think, you know, the honor class and, and the self-respect class. All good things in their right place for him. Um, so the appetites are kept in check in this personality type, um, but they're no longer oriented towards the good, but rather honor and um, self-respect. But because they have a temptation or a weak place here for competitiveness, That's just part of of this putting the spirited um, on the highest level without reason governing. Um, Therefore, this, according to Plato, um, actually becomes something that slips into kind of a pursuit of money um, and, you know, the temptations of a kind of lower set of expectations. No longer is honor really governant but the love or an undual interest in money is one of the things, um, which of course for him leads to a next group, the oligarchs. So when money starts to become more important than honor and self-respect, you start to get um, a place in which the appetite becomes progressively to dominate individuals in society. Um, And this group here basically puts the pursuit of money and what money can get at the, the heart of everything um and so they will respect the ideals of honor and courage they'll take those ideals and they'll give way to what he says are the bourgeois virtues like thrift hard work um and and a deep concern for for you know being respected for the work that you do good things but when they start to take central they set up
1: conditions to become weakened too And he goes something uh, to (laughs) note there is that you still have a tinge of the democracy there. Yes. uh, In that, you know, you want to be respected because you do good work. It's no longer because of your military prowess or anything like that. It's because you do good work. But there is still a sense of honor that is that's attached there. Yes. Yes. And that's important because when it's that
2: that slips and no longer is something that that can orient that kind of the, the, the purpose of hard work. Um, Mm. It moves towards, well, money can be made not simply by doing honorable things, but catering to our baser desires. And so this is what uh, Faser calls sort of the American business model these days. He says where oligarchs inevitably cannot resist seeking profit in catering to the frivolous and immoral wants of the young and in taking advantage of the foolishness of those willing to incur massive debt. And he says their own children become spoiled, soft, idle and profligate. Um, And this is a quote of Plato, love of money and adequate self-discipline in citizens are two things that cannot coexist in a society. Um, And I think he, he starts, the rich have no greater concern for excellence than the poor. Appealing to an insect metaphor, Plato says that a class of shiftless and unduly drones arises in this decadence dominated by unnecessary desires, such as excessive interest in sex and and a taste for um, a more varied and luxurious diet. So you get these horrible values that start to dominate once the pursuit of money for its own sake starts to take hold of a society and therefore it starts to basically um, sell itself and profit from um, appeal to the baser desires of the society you know play right towards the sex or the the kind of the lifestyle without having the character to govern it I mean I don't know how many shows I've seen where it shows people who all of a sudden get rich or the rich and wealthy and it's nothing but you know it, when they're not pursuing their power and their wealth and not concerned about how they take advantage of everyone and everything else. It's all about the party and indulgent lifestyle, right? Right. So it's, there is no, there is no honor here or, or self-respect, but it's, it's pure indulgence.
0: One of the things that uh, was a real kind of breakthrough in my thinking a few years back was uh, coming to understand the nature of decadence. Uh, Jacques Barzun, I don't know if you guys are familiar with his work, Mm -hmm. But he wrote a book entitled "From Dawn to Decadence," kind of hmm. outlining or sort of the kind of the the arc of our, our of Western culture. And um, since that time, I, I've come to to see decadence differently. I used to think of decadence as just sort of like this thing that bubbles up from below, and you're no longer able to control your, your yourself. Yeah. Uh, what Barzun uh, helped me to see is that decadence is when you lose faith in the purposes of things. So when you lose faith in the purposes of things. Uh, if your, if your civilization doesn't have some good to strive toward uh, to, uh, to praise and to pursue, um, then, you know, there's this, this kind of effect where you, you, there's a, a debasement, you, you start to live for lower things yeah. uh, and you find yourself. I, and so what he helped me to see is that uh, decadence is actually a, a manifestation of despair. Um, when you no longer believe in the goods uh, of you, that your society um maybe at one time uh, promoted uh maybe you don't even think they're even possible anymore so like if you think about our civilization um you know uh christendom uh you know for all of its uh, faults uh was oriented toward the glory of god and it uh, uh and even though we didn't ever live up to that as a civilization, it was something to strive towards. It affected our architecture, it affected the way our homes were ordered, our communities were ordered, um, not just for the clergy, but for the entire society. But now that um, God is dead, so to speak, and you guys know what I mean by that, it has become functionally uh, sort of no longer uh, a point of reference so people, it's just so folks know, when, you know, when um, Nietzsche and others, in you know, during the 60s with regard to the death of God, the, theologians, they weren't really saying God is dead. Uh, they might have thought that God never existed. <laughs> they weren't saying that God actually died. But, but what they were saying is functionally in our society, we don't think about God as the one toward whom we are doing everything you know, are striving or orienting toward. So you really can't sustain the high virtues, um, you know, or the virtues at all or wisdom at all, if you lose sight of, of you know, this higher purpose to, toward which things are oriented. And that's what I think, you know, the Christian uh, fathers, the church fathers, they said, "Okay, Plato, Aristotle, you guys are pretty good, but you don't really have a a, a, a proper understanding of the highest good, the sumum bonum. You know what it's that's, all for." Right.
2: Yeah, and they didn't understand. I mean, this is something we'll get into a little bit is the the, the way in which Christ, um, God becoming present, <laughs> um, and and therefore uniting us to and bringing us into that inner communion with the the life of the Trinity. They they had no antenna for that, and that's really the that's the heart of it all. Um, and the rest of it, the mission, um, I mean the rest of these things, again, um, they they may provide one with a higher set of purposes and, and, a, and a, an okay way of balancing things, but they they were they did not get at the 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 real the full story, if you will, um that that um that fulfills our natures. And, you know, is the desire of the nations. Um, they 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 only kind of approximate to it. And and yet they they broke off and, and distorted it in every case. Um, and so that's, you know, and that's I'm going to pick back up with um, that that very point. But, yeah, I mean, I think Nietzsche's point, too, is is, yeah, they, you know, to use Charles T- Taylor's famous term, social imaginary, you um, He's basically saying that you know Nietzsche came out and was saying you know God God no longer is informing um, our lives and our on our world view and our vision and our ethics or anything else um, other than maybe just a, a kind of a, a background affirmation, um, and I think it's very true in a, in a lot of the church is is that again the the, the Christian view of God and Christ. And the religious and moral um, frame that makes sense of Christ and, and the Trinity um, are, are, are kind of thinly affirmed and really doing no work <laughs> and, and other things have replaced it. And, it, you know, and this, I think this levels for a fair critique by the postmodernists in the rest of their unfairness for The fact that a lot of times um, what has replaced it in the church is a mask for a particular kind of life um, and not not the one who is the one who is life itself. Um, And so uh, but back to the the last kind of two steps in this, because I'll try to do these very briefly. And I I keep going back to Phaser and it's just because I think he has some rich stuff here that's kind of timely. Um, But he talks about kind of the the last stage um, in in Plato's um, sick society, and that, of course, is something that we kind of hold up as the healthy society, and that's democracy. Um, And so he says the first thing to keep in mind is that he's not talking about a procedural matter. He's uh, He's not talking about the way in which people are elected or policies decided, but he's talking about a character type that predominates a society. And so, what he has in mind is what FaZer calls a libertarian and egalitarian society in which every individual is free to do as he or she likes. So, bourgeois restraints on appetite disappear so that desires are checked only by competing desires rather than by reason, spirit, or even the oligarch's middle class solidity. Um, so and he, he Fazer says, uh, democracy, uh, as Plato describes it, is basically what American society in the 21st century has become.
0: Oh, yeah. If, if you've read The Republic and you get to that section of The Republic, you do think you're what you're reading like uh, The National Enquirer. It's yeah. just it's just amazing. That's right.
2: That's right. And one of the one of the quotes is, is it treats all men as equal, whether they're equal or not. But in particular, it treats all ways of life as equal no matter how puerile, irrational, or immoral. And if anyone tries to, to basically say any desires are bad or should be suppressed, no longer will the, the society listen. But it will insist that all pleasures are equal and should have equal say in everything. Of course, I know we've taken the shift to the equitable, but...
1: Yeah, well, and and actually to, to bring that sort of up to date with... Um, with the way the rhetoric is going through, through uh, critical race theory and things like that. If you take a look at, well, it's no longer up, but if you looked at the original purpose statement for Black Lives Matter, it included things like dismantling the patriarchal nuclear family, um, support for LGB and especially T issues, all of these kinds of things, uh, the idea being that children should be raised in a village to the degree to which mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Note they use the word parent because fathers are completely absent in the entire discussion there. Now, what's going on here is a hidden assumption that, excuse me, basically people are infinitely malleable and that all things being equal, every family configuration should have equal results. Obviously, that is not the case. Any sociologist worth a salt can tell you that. There are certain family configurations that result in better outcomes. Well, according to critical race theory, the only reason that is true is because of oppression. Hmm. Because if, you know, because it doesn't matter whether you're raised by uh, your biological parents, adoptive parents, uh, two men, two women, or a polyamorous group, it doesn't matter. The results should be the same in every case since they're not it's because the patriarchal nuclear family is oppressing all the others. That's why they get better results. And, and to note that oppression here is not something in the
2: biblical sense of the word. Right. Um, it, it, it it really, and this is something nobody, very few people have done much unpacking on, but it really has to do more with placing limitations on radical autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that's really what it has to do. Anything that puts a limit on a certain person's demand for the self-expression of whatever they want or will becomes an oppression. Um, this is one of the things that um, he talks about. Um, the The end result is uh, um, of the democratic society that moves, starts towards tyr- tyranny is that, quote, Plato, the minds of the citizens become so sensitive that the least vestige of restraint is resented as intolerable. And so, why does a Christian who who aims or should be aiming towards certain kinds of moral restraint, temperance, um, um, and why do they become such a threat to where you're arresting them for you know not wearing a mask or something when they go to service around people who other people have chosen to? Uh, why? Because there is a form of restraint that is offensive to this these this. Um, what he would call psychological disorder of becoming so sensitive to the least vestige of restraint that you cannot tolerate those that have
0: restraints. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what this um, kind of leads us to is how virtue uh, is uh, fostered, how it develops, and uh, uh, I don't know if you were hoping to get to that, Tom. But if, you know, we've, we've been talking about the kind of the structure of society. We've been talking about. Uh, how it reflects a well-ordered person. So, you know, a well-ordered person obviously is guided by wisdom and the the spirit or the virtues uh, are exercised to direct the appetites. Um, But I I think the question then is, is, well, well, how does it happen? How how does it occur? Is it just simply a matter of somebody forcing other people to do things they don't want, or is there something more to it? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've got some thoughts on that, but I didn't want to preclude anything you wanted to say about that. Well, um, actually,
1: be- mm-hmm. before we get into virtue development, we might want to get to Plato's last step.
2: Yeah, that's what I was. Let's. Yeah, let's. Maybe we'll do that, and then we'll move towards that virtue development. Then we can kind of unpack. Kind of, I know we're kind of getting close to time ending, but but uh, the the kind of some of the some of the Christian uh, contributions to this. But yeah, the enter the tyranny stage. Um, this this society that is so preoccupied with pleasure seeking um, that it begins to incline its soul towards a frenzy, and, frenzy, and excess, and violence, and indiscipline. And he warns that this is especially true of sexual pre- uh, pleasure. And this is this is very parallel to what Scripture talks about: is where where you know where does the violence of the nations arise? And it talks about the unchecked lusts. But um, one of the things he he talks about here is that Plato um, talks about the way in which um, you basically create these parasitic drones um, in, this, in this society in which no, there are no there are role reversals, fathers become like the sons, the sons come to be disrespectful of fathers and all of the chaos that comes by this kind of radical egalitarianism. Um, and, and one of the things he talks about, you get two kinds of drones developed, the passer the passive kind that just sort of hang on and, and offer no resistance. But then you get the stinging drones um, that are the nastier bunch that are aggressive and they're inclined to stir the rest up um, to sedition. Um, he goes, think of the upper middle-class are saddled in debt for a useless college degree in grievance studies, whose idea of finally doing something with his life is signing up for Antifa or with, you know, the Bernie brothers. Um, And he talks about the way in which um, the rich who are terrified of being accused of plotting against the people and being reactionaries and oligarchs um, start to pay off this drone class. And then he talks about, think of the corporate groveling to political correctness and the writing of a check after check to various, a bunch of these causes. I mean, we've seen this with the Black Lives Matter movement and the the large scale corporations paying it off, right? and so basically, this begins to create the tyrannical personality type as an extension of the democratic personality type, um, bringing in this kind of characteristic um, lawlessness into the heart of society.
1: Um, Glenn, did you want to say more on that? Yeah, well, it, it's something that, that it has been observable for a while. I talked, um, I think, in Why You Think the Way You Do, one of my, my books from several years back, I talked about the insistence on um, complete, uh, I forgot the phrase I used, but it was something like uh, un- unlimited freedom, meaning especially sexual freedom, enforced by government regulation. And that that weird dichotomy that you want this unlimited freedom, but you want the government to enforce it, is, uh it- it's irrational, it makes no sense at all until you read the Republic. Right. Hmm. And
0: I think I think maybe this is a good segue to, to, to getting into that matter of how uh, how is virtue uh, inculcated, how where does where how does it how is it developed? I think one of the, the ways that Aristotle and uh, Plato fail is in this area. They don't really know. Um, Plato pretty much says so. <laughs> he says, I don't know how this works. <laughs> now he he proposes something called anamnesis, which is the idea of the doctrine of remembering. So there's this idea that he promotes based on this supposition that we must have lived a life before. He's referring to in this particular instance, how we recognize something as being true. You know, How do we know that something is true because we can recognize its truth because we've encountered it before in a previous life. Uh, this is kind of a kicking the can down the road uh, matter you know eventually you find yourself at the at the start you know right some some place has to be where the first encounter with truth occurs (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and how do you recognize it then Mm -hmm. but uh, but also comes uh, you know it it relates to uh, this whole matter of of virtue Uh, essentially uh, Plato doesn't have a very good way of sort of talking about it apart from just throwing up sands and saying well it's it's the divine gift. It's some kind of ch- charisma, you know, some, some people have got it. Some people don't, uh, but that doesn't help you with getting it when you've got a, a sort of a, a shortage in society, you know, uh, Aristotle comes along and he proposes a kind of practical approach where he says uh, the, vir- the development of virtue is, is essentially just um, habituation. You know, you, you, you know, the, cur- the courageous learn to be courageous by being courageous you know, you, say, you know, with this kind of tautology. Uh, so in, in both cases, you've got this situation where these guys say these, you know, these virtues are tremendously important, but we're not really sure how you develop them um, or how you recognize them as, as being valuable. So like in, in, you know, Plato's case, you recognize them as being valuable because you've seen them at work in a previous life. But again, where, where does that start? You've got this kind of problem of kicking the can down the road, and then with Aristotle, you've got the sort of like, well, why do you why do you want to develop courage in the first place? Why habituate anybody to it? You might see, well, it fits in this larger structure, but but how do you even recognize that? And I think this is where um, you know the Christian faith uh, not doesn't simply supplement but corrects. And I think that there are two things that the Christian faith, uh, in, you know, introduces that I think uh, fill out uh, a, uh, a pedagogy of virtue. One is the image of God. So the image of God, in a sense, can function like amnesis, amnesis in the sense that uh, there's a kind of uh, a sense we have for the divine uh, because we are made in God's image We're kind of predisposed. This is what Paul is getting at when, in Romans one when he talks about, you know, uh, we're, you know, human beings made with, without excuse. We we know what's right, we know what's wrong. Why do we know what's right and what's wrong? Because uh, there's some sense in which we can recognize the divine. Because in some sense, the divine is in us. And I don't mean that in a sort of a New Agey way, but I mean it just in the sense of being in the image of God. We're made in the image of God, and then the whole you know process of uh, developing virtue, uh, requiring the the sort of the ongoing and present work of God in your life uh, through faith and through uh, the operations of the spirit, you know, talking about spiritual gifts, uh, being virtues, love, joy, peace, gentleness, and so forth. (laughs) These are things that uh, are active in our lives because we're participating in the life of God. And the life of God, uh, because he is in us and we are in him, is working in us to help us develop these things in the process of sanctification. So these are, I think, really much better, (laughs) because they're true, (laughs) ways in which virtue gets developed. Uh, Then, you know, I think our practical problem in the world today is is why isn't the church doing a better job of helping people uh, grow in virtue, uh, Christian graces and so forth? But anyway, those are some, some observations.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean, I think I um, one of you know, there's a lot there. I mean, and you know, I think over some different weeks, because I'm kind of fleshing out some moral theology stuff anyway. I kind of be picking up some of this stuff at other points. But one of the things, I mean, of course, is what Christianity is doing. Um, it it recognized, of course, when it when it engaged these philosophies that what what was what they were on to Well, Plato and Aristotle was this notion that understanding the nature of reality is very significant for understanding the nature of the moral life um and although they could only at certain points end up speculating because their reason was is darkened, um, who what we have in Christ is an illumination of the t- true nature of the image of God we have in Christ, right right before us, the 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 image of God carried out the right way, um, and so then we from that we also have a, a connection to the very inherent logos of creation and its inherent order. So we can start. I mean, virtue grows right out of the notion of you know, as, as Aquinas will say, following right reason. But this is an autonomous reason. This is regenerative reason. Um, and so, if you notice in Colossians, what is, what is, what is the place of our reason and our and, uh, creaturely enactment now? We still have reason and we still have um, things we can do, enact, things we can withhold from and, and pursue. These now are placed in the realm of, of reality that we are as Christians, which is Christ's resurrected state. And so because of that, we aren't left with trying to muster up a sense of of, um, fallen human energy to realize um, the moral life and these virtues. But we actually have the genuine power because we have it from the resurrected life of Christ. So these virtues now and the renewal of our attention as we contemplate who we are, seek things above, right? Then on earth, you no longer do these things, but you put on these things. There is a genuine putting on, that's the ethical life. And there is a genuine knowing, knowing who we are truly as creatures in light of the resurrection. So we, we have all of these things. Um, and so there is an exercise of, of um, holding on to things, Not letting certain things about us get out of hand. Um, You know, you who stole, steal no more. There is a practice. It's not just a command. The command doesn't do anything apart from also being able to enact it, right? And so, you know, how do you do that? How do you have a need and you see it right there and you can, through your desires, steal it from someone and have it assuaged? How can you do it? Well, A new vision of reality, God is the one who will supply all your needs according to his riches and mercy, that it is wrong to steal and do injustice to a neighbor because reality is that way. Um, But also by doing so and reorienting your life, you will also be a part of a moral fabric that will help you to begin to have the kind of life that flourishes in producing things, finding work and doing things to where you don't have to be in that situation with your neighbor. So I mean, you have this revolution taking place in the Christian understanding that the um, the mere natural virtues in their fallen state are incapable of of um, developing.
1: Yeah. Now, d- giving Plato and Aristotle their due here, they were both of them were onto something. Um, although Aristotle, I think, closer than Plato. Plato's idea of uh, anam- anamnesis is. Um, He he got the idea wrong that it's memory, but what he was doing was he's saying that we do have an innate knowledge of what's right and wrong. He was trying to figure out where that innate knowledge came from. Mm -hmm. Um, What he didn't know about was that it's the image of God. We do have the law written on our hearts. We do know what's right and wrong. We suppress it. We sear our consciences. We do all of those kinds of things. But we do have an innate knowledge of of the good. Um, He got the source wrong, but he's correct that that's there. And as far as Aristotle goes, you know there there are multiple places in Scripture where I, th- I think the word practice is even used sometimes, where we're told to practice righteousness. Now I'm, I'm going to take practice as being quite literally. It's something you've got to work on. You've got okay. to um, you've got to uh, ingrain it in yourself. Um, today I was doing in my my devotions the verse that says. Um, uh, you from Romans about, uh, you know, rejoice in tribulation because tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance um, ver, uh, character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us because the love of God is shed broad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The idea of of tribulation or struggles that we go through, if you know what we can't do in those struggles is fold. We can't just collapse. We can't just give up. We have to persevere. And it forces us to persevere. And as long as we persevere rightly without getting bitter about it, um, it will develop our character. So, I mean, Aristotle is is really on you know aligned with that. But from character to hope that doesn't disappoint requires the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And at that point, the culmination of that is emphatically very directly the work of the Spirit. The Spirit's at work, of course, through all of these steps, but in Paul's formulation there, the Spirit is the thing that that brings it to its ultimate culmination where we can have confidence in, in um, the ultimate good of all that we're going through uh, under God.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what, I mean, you typically see theologian after theologian who, who wrestled through through how to balance these things um they they would say, of course, the spring for our ability to do it, even in common grace, is supernatural love um and and uh you know um, there are approximations, for example, of patience in our regular everyday dealings with things, whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, sometimes you can be patient at the bank when uh, someone who's a Christian isn't right um so, you know we see this kind of thing, um, but what is properly understood um as something like patience. Is it's not simple toleration um, or putting up with a difficulty for, but is actually doing this for some future good, which is actually, as Christians understand it, the perfection of our nature in union with the Trinity. Um, So, yes, a person can, a a fallen creature can demonstrate some some natural goods by a certain kind of grace to um, towards a good end. But for a Christian, we understand that the supernatural love that drives that, even for the fallen person, um, is at the heart of any virtue. And that when the Christian has it, the Christian has it in a way that it's weaned off of um, those aspects about it that are not um, seen from the light of supernatural love and you see the purpose of it that ultimately it's about the perfection of our natures for our communion with the eternal god and each other and so yes this theological setting that governs our regenerate experience um, is such that it allows for us to take those insights of someone like plato and aristotle and actually position them towards the the real ultimate good that they wish they had access to
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned Colossians. There's a really interesting passage in Colossians on this, not exactly dealing with developing virtue, but dealing with getting rid of vices. Mm. What it says is, why do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed discipline and their will worship. I love that phrase, will worship. (laughs) but they are of no value in restricting sensual indulgence. Hmm. So this idea that, that we can do this by our will, worshiping our will, we can do this by will, we can do this by deciding we're going to follow a whole bunch of regulations, none of that really, because it's external, none of that really touches the heart. None of it really transforms who we are and allows us to develop true virtue as opposed to just this sort of fake virtue that consists of of, um, deciding, okay, I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z, and I'm going to force myself into that situation. doesn't really change your hearts. Yeah, like virtue signaling. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that we've gotten to a point where we should probably wrap things up. I th- and I think this is a good point to wrap things up because I think uh, we're getting to the heart of things here. Uh, you know, as we've as we've described him, provides us with a, maybe a, a basis for addressing this in in more depth at another show. But uh, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, anything you, you want to say as we conclude, Tom?
2: Well, I, I think, again, just kind of to bring it all together is one of the things I've noticed increasingly in church and in world um, is, is a kind of flaunting of intemperance. Um, and what I mean by that is not governing these appetitive um, states that we have or these, these appetites that we have, especially the worst of them, um, in ways that are for, for any kind of good, much less our ultimate good. And so it was kind of a a kind of a return to, okay. how did the classical world think of this? And then how did Christianity really um, what what did it contribute? And then what can what riches can we draw upon to kind of retrieve some of this stuff to help help us in in kind of reconnecting with certain virtues so that we don't get caught up in in
0: the craze um, of of the tyranny around us? (laughs) Right, right. Anything you want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? I think I'm done. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for listening to the uh, Theology Podcast, folks. We really do appreciate your interest and support. Um, We are in the process of uh, thinking about uh, what we introduced last week, uh, kind of a maybe tour of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, We don't have anything else to share about that yet. Uh, But uh, as things develop and our plans come together, we'll be sure to let you know. But uh, anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot uh, once again, and bye-bye. Bye now.